Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the Podmedic, and we've got a great episode for you tonight with some new folks, new voices um, that are coming in to uh, help out with the team. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing their expertise added to the show, as well as covering some of the current events, including Hurricane Ian, which is why we're recording a little early this week, because we wanted to kind of give a preview before it makes landfall in the U.S. And um, so I will be getting this episode out, hopefully right ahead of that landfall. Um, Anyway, uh, we're recording this Tuesday night, the 27th of September and uh, 2022, and uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about Hurricane Ian in the rest of the episode. But before I can get to that, I have to bring in my co-host, Sam Bradley. Sam, a lot going on, and um, I'm excited to dig into this uh, big storm. Yes, and uh, a few other things we're going to talk about. Well, weather in Colorado is boring, so that's all I could tell you. Still too hot for for fall. But I want to introduce you to our new people. Uh, the DePod ones helped us find another meteorologist who's also married to another meteorologist. Does that sound familiar? Uh, Melissa, you want to tell us a bit about yourself, where you are and what you do and so forth? Yeah. So um, I'm Melissa. I am a meteorologist and also I'm an emergency manager in the Birmingham, Alabama area um, where I serve as a PIO, as a subject matter expert for weather, and I serve um, as a planner at the county office that I work for. Um, I've been an EM for about close to a decade now and um, got into the field directly out of college. So I'm really excited uh, to be on here today and excited to talk about the topics we have set forth for us. I don't know, Jamie. That's pretty high end there. Well, I, I knew Becky was going to find somebody great for us, and she absolutely did. I'm really looking forward to having Melissa share her expertise with us on a variety of topics tonight. You betcha. And we have someone from our community that I roped and strangled and pulled in, and that's Michael Berryhill. Hi, Michael. You want to tell us a bit about you? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Michael Berryhill. Uh Right now, I live uh, just east of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, my experience is mostly private sector, uh, high-risk security. I've done security consulting, um, security assessments for several different firms in the Nashville area. Uh, I started out originally working in uh, Central Florida, um, kind of cut my teeth doing uh, security in uh, housing projects. Uh, from there, I moved on to doing uh, casino security at the uh, Hard Rock in Tampa, and I was eventually invited to join their emergency response team, which kind of responds to some more of their violent incidents and uh, medical-related calls, although we were never really certified as medics. We, our job was basically to approach if someone had passed out on the floor or something like that and just kind of determine, like, okay, you know, get them on their feet if we can, you know, rouse them up and Basically, go ahead and get EMS involved when needed. Sounds interesting. That's a skill set we haven't had before. And another Tennessean, Dr. Joe. Absolutely. Welcome aboard, both of you. We're so glad to have you guys with us. Appreciate it. So, Melissa, this is where I throw it to you. Let's just look at uh, local weather, local, that is, in the United States. Is there anything uh, in particular going on this week? 
Other than the hurricane, um, we do have a cold front uh, pushing through the center portion of the United States. It's actually causing some red flag warnings right here where I'm at in Alabama. Um, it's very unusual for us to have very dry weather with relative humidity within 20%. So um, we've been on the lookout for that and on the lookout for some critical fire weather. Um, and then we also up in the kind of like the Canada area, we also had um, the hurricane that hit up there. But um, Ian's the kind of the main focus right now. Everybody's uh, really focused on that, really focused on the impacts that it's going to have to the Florida Peninsula. Um, and it looks like it's going to deliver a wallop in um, storm surge, flash flooding, winds, and we've had several reported tornadoes at this time. So, Yeah, we're definitely going to spend the larger portion of this podcast on that very thing. Uh, Joe, you have a comment? Yeah, just talking briefly about the uh, hurricane impact in Canada that, that hit uh, close to home for me. I'm from Newfoundland originally, and uh, they had quite a bit of damage on the western side of Newfoundland, in, in, uh, including the small community I uh, uh, started out in uh, many, many, many years ago. So uh, that was um, uh, apparently the most impactful hurricane that uh, Canada has ever seen. So. Uh, although it wasn't much for us here, it was a lot for them. We never knew that, Joe. I never knew you came from Newfoundland. I'm a Newfoundland. Known you all these years, and you never told me that. Wow. Well, in general, uh, this year has been crazy weather-wise, but you know more so across the the world. I mean, all of the different earthquakes, uh, floods, and. Pakistan, and we've had them here in Appalachia, uh, earthquakes in China and Afghanistan, floods in Brazil, wildfires everywhere uh, here and there. And then, of course, our, our hurricane season. One thing that baffles me, Melissa, is it took so long for them to show themselves. It seemed so quiet at the beginning of the season. No, I, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, there's could be a lot of things that could be causing that. We all thought that we were going to have an extremely active hurricane season with several major hurricanes um, and several making landfall. Um, and it really took until mid-August for the Atlantic Basin to wake up. And it it's woken up um, and, and come back with a vengeance <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. Well, before we get into Ian, uh, let's recap Fiona a little bit and the damage she did. Would you like to jump on that? Yeah, actually, um, I did see um, with Fiona looking through what's been coming through on social media and the reports out of that. And unfortunately, Ian's kind of overshadowed Fiona, especially in the United States. Um, but there were several videos of homes being washed away on the coast um, in that area and homes falling into the ocean and storm surge and flooding. And it just absolutely wrecked that part of Canada. And it, it, it's heartbreaking. Um, and seeing some of the things that um, Canada is doing in terms of activating their military to provide support to those areas that have been impacted is incredible to see. Um, very similar kind of how we use FEMA here and some of our state and local emergency managers to be able to provide aid after disasters occur. So um, really just looking at the holistic view of what impacts occurred and, and what Canada is doing to respond to assist those residents that have been impacted. Yeah, as Joe said, that, that was quite an unprecedented storm for that area. That, that's sad. So 
talk about Ian. Well, before Ian, we get to that, I think we haven't really talked much since um, what Fiona first hit um, Puerto Rico, correct, Joe? Oh, yeah. yeah that's what I was going to mention. I knew I forgot something. Good point. Joe, what's going on? Um, I know you, you said there was an IST deployed initially down to Puerto Rico when they got hit initially um, by Fiona, um, and there's still significant um, things happening down there with getting power back and restored and communities back up to uh, some level of uh, sustainability. Yeah, you're right, Jamie. So uh, major damage to Puerto Rico that literally took their power grid down. Uh, They have never really um, recovered very well from um, that terrible storm about five years ago. So uh, a lot of flooding, uh, a lot of rivers changing their course and uh, a lot of uh, loss of power. So uh, the FEMA search and rescue system has had a Uh, incident support team and uh, two task forces um, in place in Puerto Rico for um, about a week or so uh, just ahead of that storm and and following after it. And uh, those guys have just recently disengaged in Puerto Rico and are now redirecting toward uh, Ian. Well, that begs my next question, Joe. Um, how are USARs being staged for Ian? So we currently have uh, an incident support team and five urban search and rescue task forces that are staged uh, deep in the southeast, uh, all, all around the Florida panhandle. Um, uh, in preparation for response to this storm, um, there are multiple other teams that are uh, on alert, and uh, you know, depending on how big this thing is and how much of an impact it makes, uh, will determine whether or not we put a second uh, command and control team in the field and uh, additional teams as well. So um, we've got an initial response ready to go, and we're just uh, waiting to see what uh, what we need after that gets started. Yes, indeed. So it's it's still a crapshoot, as they say. Melissa, you had a comment? I did. Circling back to Fiona and Puerto Rico, um, I quickly looked up some statistics, and it looks like there's still about 500,000 people without power in Puerto Rico right now, nine days after um, being impacted by Fiona. Um, And they got over some areas of Puerto Rico sell over 30 inches of rain, (gasps) which caused massive flash flooding, um, landslides, mudslides. um, And it just absolutely uh, devastated parts of Puerto Rico, especially after, like what Joe said, um, ha- uh, Maria impacting Puerto Rico about five years ago. They still haven't fully recovered from that. So um, just starting to get back on their feet, um, kind of get back to some sense of normalcy, and then they just get absolutely clobbered again by another um, tropical system. So yeah, right. very unfortunate. It is. Jamie and I remember that because we used to do live EMS conferences and, and, and do live interviews with folks. And uh, that was right about the time Maria hit. And we interviewed a doctor who'd actually come up to the U.S. just so he could have some electricity and some warmth. Um, it, it, some of the stories out of yeah, there were just amazing. he brought his wife and daughter with him, um, yeah. um, Dr. Gustavo Flores. And um, he yeah. uh, still still working down there in Puerto Rico. And um, I'm might be interesting to connect with him and see if he'd like to come on at some point once they're settled in down there. 
Good idea, because I, I run across him every now and then. Michael, do you have any, any questions or comments so far? Uh, no, I'm just listening to this huge knowledge drop. Uh, you know, um, I guess <clears throat> the average person doesn't really kind of understand the amount of coordination that goes into preparing for uh, these types of disasters. Um, I guess one thing I would wonder is, uh, or one thing I was wondering about is when uh, when search and rescue teams like USAR, or when they deploy for like a USAR type uh, operation, uh, do they usually work in coordination with uh, with basically like with the Coast Guard, with the National Guard, or are they kind of autonomous and just kind of let you know let people know this is the area we're going to be working in, this area we're going to be covering, and then just go and do their own thing? So, so I'll take that one. Uh, and, and the answer is the former. Uh, when when FEMA has search and rescue teams there, our, our first mission is to reach out to the local AHJ, agent, uh, agency having jurisdiction, uh, and tell them what we have in the field and what, we, what our capabilities are. And um, we work with uh, that local agency uh, to have them assign us where they need us. Um, we often work with uh, Coast Guard, particularly along the coast for hurricane work. Uh, we work with an awful lot of SUSAR teams, state urban search and rescue teams. Uh, there's a lot of volunteer groups that we'll work with as well. So we are, we are there in support of the locals and we follow their uh, request for whatever services we can supply. Melissa? Yeah, to even kind of parse that down even more, um, those teams and those requests are actually made directly at the local level, at the county level. And then that bumps up and you coordinate it with your state EMA, and then they make that request through something called EMAC. And that's how we essentially put our feelers out for USAR teams, IMTs, um, different types of search and rescue groups to be able to come in after a place has been impacted or to pre-stage these items if we know that we're going to sustain significant impacts. So we can already get those um, commodities and those teams rolling in after the storm pushes itself out. Yeah, I can see your emergency preparedness background is going to be very helpful because uh, we talk about those kinds of things all the time. So while we got you on, Melissa, um, what is the current projection for Ian? Right now, it looks like the storm itself is potentially going to make landfall anywhere between Tampa and Fort Myers. Um, there's still some inconsistency in the model guidance of where exactly um, the center of uh, central pressure that that eye is going to make landfall on the Florida Peninsula. It's At one point, it was north of Tampa, then it was Tampa, and then it's kind of wavered itself south. So um, anywhere along really that western portion of the Florida Peninsula needs to have um, their eyes up and their ears out and stay vigilant. Um, and if they're ordered to evacuate, they prob probably should go ahead and just get the heck out of there while they still have time. Agreed. Jamie? Yeah, Melissa, one of the questions I had was, I, and I, I thought I heard somebody on, on um, one of the weather stations uh, or weather reports uh, mention that because it's slowing down um, as it approaches the coast, 
that it, it's more likely to wobble one way or the other, and that's why they're having difficult. The different models are showing some variability in where it's going to track exactly once it makes landfall. That that certainly is a factor um, that plays into where it's going to make landfall. But there's also some model uh, uncertainty on how fast and if if in fact Ian is going to slow down as it approaches the coast because. Um, as of right now, it's actually sped up a little bit, and they're not expecting it to stall right on that western edge anymore. But um, there's different solutions saying it's going to slow down, it's going to stall, or it's going to keep on moving. So you have two scenarios that could both play out rather harshly, but one could be worse than the other. And certainly we don't want it stalling out over on that um, western edge of the peninsula at all because then you're going to have situations of extreme rainfall, which leads to extreme flash flooding on top of just absolutely devastating storm surge. Yeah, I hear there's a lot of storm surge issues, but you'd think Florida would be used to that. So I know we always discuss, our meteorologists make a point of saying, don't pay attention to the numbers because they don't always mean anything. But um, what about, Ian? You projected to be a three or a four. Is that still in question? And if so, what kind of damage can it do? So we're still expecting it to make landfall as a major hurricane, whether that's a category three or a category four, that's still up in the air at this point. It's all dependent upon when it goes through an eyewall replacement cycle and if it does continue to intensify as it approaches that Florida Gulf Coast, um, which is certainly possible. We've seen time and time again that happen over the last five years with past hurricanes um, in the Gulf of Mexico, Sally, Laura, um, Harvey, all of these uh, major hurricanes that uh, and impactful hurricanes that have impacted um, the Gulf, Gulf, Gulf Coast. Um, but right now it looks like um, sustained winds of about 120 miles an hour. They have aircraft recon flying in right now to see if um, it's dropped in pressure anymore. Um, and it looks like some areas could see surge in excess of 10 feet, 10 to 12 feet. Um, and that ranges anywhere from Port Charlotte all the way down to the Naples area of Florida. So um, certainly a very wide um, area of impacts that are potentially expected from Ian and certainly in very highly populated areas. Well, it's making the people in Florida crazy because I have a very good friend uh, not too far from the sea. And he said, all it's done, you know, this has been projected to hit since Monday. And he said, all we get is drizzle. You know, it's almost like they're not thinking it's going to be kind of a big deal. But that's scary a little bit because maybe they're reluctant to evacuate in the areas that they're supposed to evacuate. And you mentioned you know someone who was in one of those areas and is reluctant to evacuate. What would you say to that? If, if you have anybody in the path of Ian, the first thing you want to tell them is if they're under a mandatory evacuation and they don't leave, there won't be help coming for them if they call for help in the middle of the storm. Um, responders won't come help you. Um, because it may be too dangerous for them to even get out into the conditions and respond to provide life-saving rendering aid. Um, so if you're expecting help, if you need it, you need to get out. Um, and that's plain and simple. You're under a mandatory evacuation. If you're under a voluntary evacuation, just get out. I know several of these counties have opened shelters 
Um, there, you can go to Florida Department of Emergency Management website and look at all the shelters open. You can look at where all the active evacuations are at right now. Um, and if you haven't left, it's time to leave. There is no time to wait. You need to get out and you need to get out now. Well said. Jamie? And, and I think you, know, you, you made a good point, Melissa. It, it really is important to listen to your local emergency managers. They know best the conditions expected on the ground in your local area. And they also know the terrain and the expectations for both tidal surge, storm surge coming in from the saltwater side and the possibilities for flash flooding from extreme rainfall. Um, and, and how that will affect an area that you live in. Um, and it may be a type of a storm. I mean, I know they've been talking about it's been decades since a storm has hit some of these areas directly um, in, in, the, in the sense that Ian is going to cause the type of damage they expect. And so there are people there who've never lived through something like this and don't know what to expect. And so that's why I think the messaging is so important. What what kind of things do managers think about? I mean, you're a public information officer. How do you get the word out effectively to encourage people to follow instructions? The biggest thing when, when I'm thinking about anything that's going to cause harm to the people within my jurisdiction and in my community is I'm going to message the impacts of the hazard first and foremost. So what, what are those impacts, whether it be devastating storm surge, uh, what the, the the wind speeds, the flash flooding, and then the actionable items that they can do right now to protect themselves from those hazards. Nine times out of 10, if you're in a mandatory evacuation area, it's because you're in a storm surge area. And that storm surge is projected to be high enough to cause significant threat to life and limb, right? So the best way to protect yourself from that is to, in fact, evacuate. So provide them not only impact-based messaging, so what they can expect, what they can expect if they don't leave, and then what are the actionable items they can do right now to protect themselves. Jamie, earlier you had mentioned, uh, actually earlier today, uh, engagement that works to get attention. And you had actually sent me something that was on one of your Maryland uh, emergency management sites. Can you Comment on what you're thinking there. Well, you know, um, every now and then I follow our, you know, our local emergency management um, as well as the state um, emergency management agency, and um, I I always enjoy whoever's in charge of the social media feed at Maryland's emergency management agency always seems to come up with some clever ideas for messaging, um, and they put out a um, a photo, and of course I'm not going to be able to find it now, but. They put out a photo meme that they created, which is overlay of the governor with, <laughs> with um, I think, one of the emergency managers. Um, and it basically said, kids, can we add, kids say, can we add Snickers to the emergency kit? And the parents' answer is, the best we can do is a box of granola bars. But it's, it's, it's that kind <laughs> of funny, like, makes you chuckle, but it also makes the average person think, oh, we don't have an emergency kit. Um, maybe we need to have one. I mean, it opens that discussion, and I think that's something that, you know, I, I, I think emergency managers, and we talk about preparedness on this show. We've been talking about it for since we started the show, um, that, that preparedness really builds community resilience better than anything else. 
And one of those things is that the individuals are prepared for the events that occur in their communities. And that includes having an emergency kit and a disaster evacuation plan, um, all those things that families can do and engage in together. And it doesn't take long. It's 15 or 20 minutes to kind of sit down and say, all right, this is what we're going to do if this happens. And this is where the stuff is kept. And this is where we're going to grab everything. And yes, we'll have granola bars in our emergency kit, but not candy bars. And I think that, you know, that this type of messaging um, can really spur that type of productive discussion in the community. Besides, chocolate will melt. Granola bars don't. Melissa? (laughs) So... Jamie's on the right track. Um, humor gets engagement, whether it's with memes, using GIFs when you're posting information, or just putting together very creative um, social media graphics and graphics for your website to really draw the eye um, to the content that you're trying to provide to the public. And it's just having meaningful content coupled with that is really going to help um, agencies really push that information out to the public and get the public to read it and engage because most people don't realize that they have most of the stuff that they need within their household to prepare. They just don't have it in a centralized location or they don't have it in a go bag. Um, so it's it's just educating the public um, with meaningful messaging and in a way that can garner engagement for their agencies. Joe? So, Michael, one of the things that we do not talk about very much as part of our go bag is the security issue for uh, an individual or a family who's potentially evacuating or deciding to stay in place. What are your what are your recommendations around security based stuff that people need to have as part of their preparedness kit? Uh, Well, you know, most shelters, uh, obviously, they're not going to allow anyone to carry any, any sort of weapons or anything like that. That's going to be a that's going to be a huge no-no, and that's understandable. You know, you have a bunch of people that are obviously stressed out, you know, high anxiety level, and they're all kind of crammed into a single area together. That's kind of a recipe for disaster, you know, if you allow any sort of weapon to be introduced in that. Um, there are things that you can do as far as watching out for your personal security in that type of situation. And it, it really comes down to just common sense and, and being aware of your surroundings. Um, you know, keeping an eye out for people that are behaving erratically. Um, you know, uh, the the body language aspect of, you know, someone clenching their fists or holding their head, um, pacing around, stuff like that. You know, those are all signs that someone's on edge and potentially, you know, could blow up at someone. Um, it gets a little bit more complicated when you're when you're involving like watching out for your family because then it you know especially if you have small kids and you're trying to keep them in one centralized spot you know if you're especially if, if you're in a shelter situation um, you know you don't know who else is in there uh, granted everyone's in there for the same reason but not everyone in there could be you know a fine upstanding person either so it, it really just comes down to just kind of keeping your head on a swivel and watching for those uh, those physical cues that someone may not be able, uh, may not be handling the stress as well as you are. Well, and add to that that people that need meds to keep their head straight may not have them. They either had to leave them behind or they can't get a refill, yada, yada. So all those things are factors. In fact, we did a whole show on that very thing is, is, is mental health in, in shelters. 
So that yeah, would be... I, I listened. Uh, I actually listened to that earlier today. I'm, I was just trying to get caught up. It's been kind of a crazy week around here, and uh, it, it really made me think about that. If uh, you know, here in Tennessee, there's not really any kind of situations that are going to come up where we're going to need to evacuate or something like that. But if it did come up, you know, I have a six-year-old daughter. She's nonverbal autistic. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, she has certain medications that she takes, you know, on a daily basis. So none of them are necessarily, they don't, none of them are going to, they don't, she doesn't require them, you know, to live. But they do help with uh, her symptoms related to having autism. And I thought to myself, well, if we're in that type of situation and we didn't have access to those to those medications, how do we handle that? You know, how do we... Uh, do we go back to the basics of just trying to use, you know, just calming voices and kind of reassurance and keeping her around familiar faces and all that to keep her uh, to keep her on an even keel until we can get her that medication? Or do you know if we get find ourselves in a selfish situation, do we immediately go and find someone that looks like they're responsible and say, hey, you know, this is my daughter. She you know she ha- takes medication for these conditions. We don't have that medication. Is there anything you can do to help? You know, uh, so you have to take all that kind of stuff definitely into consideration. You know, and that's another show I'd like to do because so many people don't understand autism and people on the spectrum are just so different in so many ways, uh, very individual ways. But, you know, I digress. But now that we got you here, Michael, you used to live in Tampa area. Did, did you have any hurricane experiences there? Yeah, um, I was one of those people. Uh, now, just bear with me. This is, you know, years ago. I wasn't as wise as I am now. But I was one of those people that every time they said, oh, you should evacuate, I was like, no, I'm not going to evacuate. I'm not doing that. Um, and I can tell you from firsthand experience that every single time that they recommended we evacuate and I didn't, I ended up regretting it at some point. At some point, you know, the house shook a little too much or – the trees were falling in the yard, or I watched my neighbor's shed get picked up and thrown into the tree line. I thought to myself, you know, maybe I, I should have listened a little better and uh, and gone ahead and evacuated. Um, I'm older and wiser now, and I have, you know, responsibilities to people other than myself, so I would never put myself in that situation again. Uh, but I, I've, I've checked up on all my friends that are still down there. I spoke to all of them today. I called each and every one of them to make sure that they were either leaving or they were prepared. And luckily, the ones that were lived, that were in recommended evacuation zones, they all left. Uh, the only, I only have three friends that didn't leave, and they all live in very big, very strong brick houses, and they're all well prepared. Uh, so I wish they would have left, but at the same time, you know, they they kind of they've all lived there their entire lives. They know the risk going into it. Which is helpful for your anxiety level to have touch base with them. So that's a good idea. Joe? Well, I appreciate the the feedback from Michael on that. You know, I I think there are a lot of different aspects to security. And, you know, it's, it's personal, physical security, but it's also mental and family and medical and all the other aspects of that that we don't think about very often. Yeah, it really is. Um, <clears throat> and see one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about security uh, in general is that 
you know, when you hear, when someone says they do security work, you automatically think, okay, this guy rides around, you know, rides around the mall on a Segway. You know, you think <laughs> the mall cop, you, you think that kind of stuff. And granted, there's a lot of people out there that are like that. Um, there's also people that, the people that I like to work with and the people that I've had really good experiences with that are, a lot of them are former law enforcement. Um, one of the best teams that I ever worked with, we provided security for a, uh, I guess you'd call it a multimedia station. Um, it's a, it's a cable TV station that, uh, up in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And they, uh, one guy on my team was a retired canine officer. He did 25 years with the police department in Wisconsin as a canine officer. Another guy, the other guy on my team was a retired ATF agent. And we were selected to be there at that place because of the high active shooter risk. And the client specifically requested, I want people to know what they're doing and know how to respond if there is an active shooter type situation. And we were, we were trained to deal with that. We were uh, in charge of training other sites, you know, the officers at other sites on how to, uh, on how to handle an active shooter type situation as well. And sometimes we would bring them onto that site on the weekends because it was a big place that lots of buildings, but it was very open access. Um, and so we would bring, bring people in on the weekends and we would run through them. We would show them how this is how we respond to an active shooter type situation here. Now take that information and try to apply it to your site and how you work. Uh, the best guys that out there that do private security and that don't get enough respect or enough credit for what they do are the guys that go out and they take advanced courses out of their own pocket. You know, they go and they get that, you know, they, even if it's something as simple as getting, you know, tourniquet training or stop the bleed training at your local emergency management, uh, where I live in Wilson County, Tennessee, the local emergency management, they do, uh, stop the bleed training every year and it's free to the public. Anyone can go in and they teach you tourniquet use, you know, uh, just basic wound care type stuff. And even that right there, that little bit of knowledge is enough to save someone's life, you know? There's, there's so much more that goes into it. So the, the public really has the wrong impression. I think a lot of times about security, you know, you'll see someone obviously that looks sloppy and they're, like I said, they're riding their Segway around the mall or something like that. And they're there to do a job. They're there to get a paycheck, but you'll also, you'll see some really squared away guys, you know, that they have the right gear. They have the right look. They have the command presence. They know how to speak to people. They know how to pay attention to what's going on. They know how to give, you know, accurate descriptions of events that happen. Um, they carry tourniquets, they carry medic pack, you know, they carry all that stuff. And frankly, those guys, a lot, in a lot of cases, they are the first responder. When something happens, they're the first one that's there. They're the first one to call 911. They're the first ones to assess the situation. And most of them, they either got that experience through military or law enforcement work, or they took the time and paid out of their own pocket to, to have that training. Well, this sounds like a great segue to Paragon Medical Education, but first I want to ask if Melissa has any closing thoughts. Nothing at this time. I just want people to stay vigilant on the forecast. Ian's going to really um, impact the peninsula. Um, I'm not looking forward to this weekend seeing what the aftermath is and um, what kind of impacts are actually sustained. So 
um, very much on, on, on top of looking at the weather and, and really paying attention to the weather through the rest of the year. We've got secondary severe weather season, and then we go into a winter weather season and blizzard season, and then move directly into spring severe weather season. So, And then, of course, it's always one thing after another. Joe? <clears throat> yeah, that it is. Uh, it looks like it's going to be a, a very busy next uh, week or so anyway, so I'll keep you guys posted on... Uh, uh, activities uh, from a search and rescue standpoint uh, as we move forward in the next week. So, Jamie, Michael made good comments about training, and I think uh, I know where you're going with this. Well, yeah, we just want to thank Joe and the rest of the gang at Paragon Medical Education Group for their continued support of the Disaster Podcast. We couldn't bring this show to you without their support. Um, we, you know, they help cover the hosting of the files and this website and everything else that, that goes to bringing this uh, show to you. So um, make sure you stop by and visit them and um, find out more about what they're up to. And, Joe, anything good? I know you're going to be doing some research work uh, over the next coming week, and some other things are probably on your radar as well. Uh, you're correct, Jamie. Thanks. Uh, we do have some more of our cardiac arrest research that's going to be going on next couple of days and um, a couple of potential uh, training sessions coming up in the next uh, 60 days or so. So uh, it tends to slow down toward the end of the year, but we got a couple things left. If folks want to find out about how you all can put together a real customized disaster training program for a community, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Well, they can find us on the web at Paragon Medical Education Group uh, or Facebook at Paragon Medical Group uh, or through the Disaster Podcast. We love to talk to people so we can customize a personalized experience uh, to address the needs that they have concerns about. Excellent. Um, Melissa, where can folks find out more about what you have to say or talk about? Is there a place online you post things that they can follow? Yeah. Um, if anybody wants to keep up or continue the conversation, they can find me on Twitter at Southern Mel, S-O-U-T-H-R-N underscore M-E-L-L-E. Um, DMs are always open if you guys um, have any questions. And I've also joined the Facebook group, so you can ping me in there as well. Yay. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. <laughs> Michael, how about you? I guess you're, we got you from the Facebook group, so if folks want to follow up with you, they can do that there. Yeah, that's going to be the best way. Um, I tend to keep a pretty low profile. Um, I don't have any uh, any businesses that I can plug or anything like that. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm mostly working freelance. Um, I, I have a few companies that they, uh, they contact me when the right kind of job comes up, and, you know, I, I follow up with them. So, uh, yeah, basically, if, if anyone wants to have any kind of conversations with me or anything like that, uh, doing it through the Facebook group is the way to go. Excellent. And thanks for coming on, both of you, tonight, um, lending your expertise to this episode. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Sam, where can folks find you? Well, certainly on the Disaster Podcast Facebook group, which we were just discussing. Social media, I'm under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11 in most of those places. Jamie? And you can find me under the handle Podmedic in just about every social media location out there. Um, so please uh, friend or follow or check in with me there. 
Uh, and, of course, in our Disaster Podcast Facebook group. And don't forget to head over to DisasterPodcast.com where you can subscribe to the podcast. There are links to do so on your favorite mobile device right there below the audio player on each episode page. So click through there. Some, in a lot of cases, it's a one-click subscribe situation. So once you click through to that link, you'll be able to subscribe pretty easily. Um, and we'd like to have you do that because then you can pick up and make sure you catch every upcoming episode We'll probably be doing a follow-up in some respect on Ian next week and um, I, and maybe even more depending on what happens between now and then because Joe will keep us up to date on what's going on. Uh, so, Sam, I'm looking forward to getting back with folks and uh, future episodes. Absolutely. It's just sad that we have to have extra episodes when some disaster is happening. But this is the Disaster Podcast. And as always, and Melissa made a point of, you know, there, there's this thing and then that thing and then winter weather. And so there's always something to be prepared for. So please prepare for those things. Uh, watch the weather channels. Get hooked up with the social media from your emergency management agency. And if they ask you to leave, please do. And I think Michael made a good point of that. So till next time.